0: And Lord, what you want to uh, put into our hearts as you teach us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Chapter 2, of the book of Joshua. Uh, one of the things that uh, I wanted to pass along to you is uh, most of you probably have been here around Calvary Chapel for a while, you, you know a little bit of the history of Calvary Chapel and how it got started uh, clear back in the 60s, the Calvary Chapel movement, and maybe some of you um, are not that familiar with it, but Pastor Chuck Smith back in 65, um, 45 years ago, uh, went to pastor a little church in Costa Mesa, California called Calvary Chapel, and that's where the Calvary Chapel movement would begin, and Pastor Chuck would teach uh, that little congregation through the scriptures, and so he took them through the Bible. I believe the first time he took his congregation uh, through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, he did it in two years. Um, The first time that I did it, it took me 11 years uh, to do it, so a little bit slower pace. And uh, so a lot of the the books that we're in, we're going through it for the second time. But uh, we know that Pastor Chuck, as the church began to grow and people were coming and, and learning the Word of God, that him and um, his wife Kay would go down to Huntington Beach and they would pray for the young people that were down there, the hippies that were there at that time on the beach. And they began to minister to them down there. And so many of them started getting saved. And that would begin what was called the Jesus Movement. Perhaps you have heard of that movement that took place and Time Magazine reported on it. It was a a wonderful revival. And I believe that revival is still taking place through uh, the Calvary Chapels as well as God using uh, other individuals and, and other churches that are committed to teaching His Word um, and continuing to see people come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But some of those guys that were a part of that Jesus movement we're going to listen to on Saturday. And um, some of them are pastoring today some of the largest churches in America or in the world. Uh, you have Greg Laurie that came out of that movement, uh, Raul Reese, Mike McIntosh, many others that God has used in a powerful way and God touching them. And if we, I don't know if we still have the book, we should, uh, and if we don't, I'll get it. There's a book that we usually have in a bookstore called Harvest and it talks about their testimony and their lives, how these men came out of, you know, um, the, the hippie scene and drugs and all of this, how God has touched them, um, made them new in, um, regeneration of life and salvation and forgiveness and now how god has used them over the years in a very powerful way and so um, pastor chuck has been ministering there at calvary costa mesa of course it's thousands of people now in costa mesa and there are about 1500 calvary chapels throughout the united states um, 45 years later and pastor chuck has been a wonderful example to us and he's been my pastor for many years of a man who is humble, a man who is truly a servant, he has a servant's heart, and a man who's been faithful to the ministry and, and has walked with a godly walk. Paul the Apostle to the Corinthian church, what we're going to see is he's going to say to them, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And as we go over that text, Paul is not saying I'm like Christ or I'm equal to Christ. What he is saying is, as you look at my life, you should see those virtues of Christ being worked out. And Paul the Apostle certainly was one that was an example, amazing man, of one who walked close to the Lord. It was uh, those virtues of Christ-likeness being worked out in his life. And it's the same thing with Pastor Chuck, a man of humility, a man who loves the Lord, a man who loves his people. And he says to us over and over again as we go out to the pastor's conferences that you guys make sure the vision is very simple that the people that you minister to are the best-loved, best-fed sheep in your community. And oftentimes I get asked by pastors and ministry leaders here, you know, what's the vision for Calvary Chapel? And, and it's very simple. That's, that's it, to, to love people and for me to give you the whole counsel of God's Word as we go through it from Genesis to Revelation. But many of you know that Pastor Chuck uh, in December, first part of December, had a stroke. He's 83 years old. He's amazingly in good health for his age. He continues to pastor. He continues to teach. But he did have a mild stroke. And so um, he's expected to make a full recovery uh, and has taken some time. But his schedule isn't as heavy as it used to be. He'd do three Sunday morning services, Sunday night service, and then he'd teach Wednesday nights. And I think he's pretty much doing the Sunday night services and Brian Broderson's doing the Sunday morning services. Um, but Pastor Chuck is still very much active. And one of the questions that has been asked, especially as Pastor Chuck uh, has gotten up, um, you know, in his years of getting, uh, you know, 70, 75, 80. Now he's going to be 83 this summer. people and the guys would ask, wonder what's going to happen to Calvary Chapel if Pastor Chuck retires or if the Lord takes him home uh, to, to be with him. And we know that Pastor Chuck is, again, an amazing man, faithful in the ministry, been ministering for 60 years. He's not going to be able to minister forever. And um, so I got a letter this week uh, from Calvary Chapel Outreach Fellowship for the Pastors Conference and the Seniors Pastors Conference in the first week of June. And what they're going to do is they're going to extend that one day. Usually we go out, um, and the conference is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Sometimes it goes Uh, Till Thursday morning, but it's going to be Monday through Friday this time. And Pastor Chuck has told us that he wants all the senior pastors to be there. And he just feels like, and some of the guys that were planning this pastor's conference, an urgency to speak to us. And, and, And he's going to speak on Acts chapter 20. Now, a lot of you know the text there in Acts chapter 20, that Paul, he called for the Ephesian elders at that time. If you recall, and he would say to them, you're not going to see me anymore. And he would address them. And I am not saying that that's going to be Pastor Chuck's message at all. But I do feel like he has a sense of urgency in addressing us. that he's calling for us to be there and that he wants to go over Acts chapter 20, that ultimate pastors conference that Paul had with the Ephesian elders and it's a very wonderful, wonderful text. It's one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bibles because it speaks to me personally. As Paul says, you know what manner of man I came to in all seasons and how I went from house to house and how he was persecuted. And, and he says, but I'm determined to finish my race with joy for the ministry that is set before me. And I have not neglected to give you the whole counsel of God's word. So I'm sure that Pastor Chuck, while he can And I hope and pray that he's around and that we will see him ministering uh, as long as the Lord has him. Um, But I do know that he desires to talk to us about that the Lord is in control. And I know one of the things that he'll tell us that he always does, that what has begun in the spirit don't try to perfect in the flesh. That is Galatians chapter 3. And one of the things for us very clearly to understand that as we go through this book here, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's kind of similar a little bit to what we're discussing here in the book of Joshua. You see, Moses, the servant of the Lord, had been ministering for 40 years, hadn't he? And he's been a faithful servant, and he led the children of Israel out of Egypt to the wilderness. They received the law of God. They constructed the tabernacle, and Moses would take them up, to the border of the promised land. And we saw that it was in the book of Deuteronomy that that was Moses' last address to the children of Israel, wasn't it? And Moses would give them the law, and he would plead with them, please follow after the Lord. That's what the Lord is commanding you. And Moses would receive that message from the Lord that there is going to be that time when they're going to walk in disobedience and they're going to go in captivity. And that must have broke Moses' heart when he heard that. And I know that one of the things for Pastor Chuck is he's been faithful for ministering for over 40 years. And, again, um, who knows how long he's going to go. I I pray that he's around. But I do know this, that the Lord is in control. And here the children of Israel, they needed to understand that, that Moses has gone to be gathered with his people. Joshua is going to be the new leader. Oftentimes people say, well, who's going to be the new leader uh, of Calvary Chapel? I don't know who it is, but ultimately it is going to be the Lord. And what has begun in the spirit, whether it's the Calvary Chapel movement or what has begun here in the spirit at Calvary Chapel of Greeley, this congregation, that I pray that we would never try to perfect in the flesh, that we would always be sensitive to the leading of the Lord, that our faith would be in him that it isn't centered around some man. And that's what we're going to discuss even on Sunday morning as Paul is going to begin to address the Corinthian church about the that was in the church. As some of them were saying, hey, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. The real spiritual ones were saying we're of Christ. But there was division that was going on because there were those who were gathering around the individual. And so we can be blessed and ministered to and learn much. There are men... Uh, in my life that I very much appreciate been um, an example to me of ministry and uh, have been faithful. And and I can learn from that. And I appreciate that definitely. But for all of us in our lives, that the Lord is the one that sits on the throne and he's the one that leads us and guides us in our lives. He's the one that forgives us and saves us and brings us in the right relationship with him. So we want to keep the proper perspective. And Joshua here as he is told that now you're going to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. That Joshua, that every word that you set your foot, you're going to possess that. And Joshua, be strong and of good courage, as we saw in chapter 1 three times. And why could Joshua be strong and of good courage? Well, number one, the Lord promised that I'll be with you. I will be with you, Joshua, and I'm going to be with the children of Israel. I'm the one that's going to lead you. And what we're going to see in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 5, that it is going to be Joshua that's actually going to come face to face with the Lord and Joshua is going to say are you you friend or adversary you for us or against us and the Lord says no in other words that's not the question the question is are you for me because I am the commander of the Lord's army and Joshua realized who it was that he was talking to and would then worship him. We'll get into that text um, as I believe that was a Christophany, appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. That he's the commander of the Lord's army. That he's the one that will guide us and direct us and help us in the battles that we are going to face. And so they needed to be reminded of that, that you know what? Moses is gone. Now Joshua is going to lead them in. But Joshua, be strong, good courage, because I am with you. And I pray that we would always remember that, that the Lord is with us, and that's going to help us to go into the promised land of our lives. Again, this book shows us how this we can experience the blessings and and, uh, the the victory that God has for us, how we can move in faith and stand on on His promises, and that's what God wants us to do. Too often times, Christians are out there in the wilderness because they're not fully... Believing in the Lord, his word, not fully submitted to him, standing on his promises. There's unbelief, there's fear, there's all these things. And so here Joshua, he's going to cross the Jordan River. There's going to be battles. There's going to be Jericho that they're first going to have to go against. There's going to be giants in the land. There's going to be other cities to conquer. And he needed to know that the Lord was with him. And the Lord is with you. And I think that's a real key for us. To understand, just as Paul would write to the Corinthian believers, hey, you've been graced in all these things, as we discussed on Sunday morning, in all knowledge and utterance. You're waiting for the Lord to come back. You lack in no gift. But it's been given to you by the grace of Jesus Christ. And you've been called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. And we need to, every single day, come to the awareness that, Lord, that you are with me. And that you called me to fellowship with you. And that's the wonderful thing about being a Christian, that every single day that we have opportunity to fellowship with Him. Because we've been called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. And when we come into that awareness every single day that the Lord is with me, and that His Word is true, and I can stand on His promises, then we see that our Christianity is exciting and it's dynamic. It's where we gain strength and wisdom as we look to him and as we gain from him, as we draw close to him. And so I'm with you. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. And then Joshua, as we saw in verse 8, the best way that you can be prosperous and successful is meditate on my word day and night. And as I mentioned last week, again, another very important principle for you and for me to to experience that abundant life that the Lord has for us, you got to know the promises of the Lord. If you don't know the promises of the Lord, how you're going to possess those promises, if you don't know what the Lord has for you as you go through His Word, the wonderful principles and truths that He has for you and for me, then how are we going to possess those things that we don't know what to possess? So it's important that you and I, that we continue as we go through the Word of God, Just seeing God's faithfulness and His goodness and His promises that are for you and for me and to stand on those promises. And that, as we meditate on it, as we apply it in our lives, that's how we can be prosperous and successful in the best sense of the words. And so Joshua has told the children of Israel that we're going to go into the promised land. We're going to cross this Jordan in about three days. So get ready. And how exciting that must have been, finally, after 40 years of being in that wilderness, they're going to go into the promised land. But again, they come to Joshua, and they said, Joshua, that we are going to follow you. We're going to take heed to what you say, just like we did Moses. But there is one thing that we ask of you, and that is you be strong and of good courage. And I pray that as we walk out of this place, that our everyday lives, whether to our families, to the people that we work with and next to, whether it's at school, whether it's in our neighborhoods, that people would see the strength of the Lord being worked out in us and through us, that the reality of Jesus Christ is being evident, that it would give us opportunity to then share how good God is and how true that he is. And so we're going to see that that testimony of the goodness and the power of God is going to be learned from those who are in the land. And we're going to learn from an individual as we go into chapter 2, who had heard about the goodness of God and responded to it. So chapter 2 of Joshua. Now Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from Micaiah Grove, the spies secretly saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. So Joshua here, he sends two spies. And, and Bob's going to throw up a map here real quick. And in that map that's right there, we talked about last week that they were over in the plains of Moab. And they're looking to the west. They're looking into the promised land. They're looking across the Jordan Valley over towards Jericho. They look at the Judean mountains that are over there. And then Moses would go up on Mount Nebo, and there he died, and the Lord buried him. That's where the book of Deuteronomy ends. And then the children of Israel would mourn for 30 days. They would then, as they would take and break camp, they would move down the mountainside down to the edge of the valley, and there in an area called the Achaia Grove or the Plains of Moab. So, there, that's where they are camped right now. And so, a short distance away across the Jordan River, the Jordan River runs through the middle there that you can see. Now, the Jordan River back at that time was much larger. The reason that it's smaller today is because they use the water out of the Jordan River. They use the water out of the Sea of Galilee uh, for agricultural means, for irrigation means. And so the Jordan River starts way up north uh, in the mountains of Lebanon and the base of Mount Hermon. And if you ever go to Mount Hermon in the wintertime, there's a lot of snow up there. So the runoff comes through the headwaters of the Jordan River, comes into the Sea of Galilee, and then it exits the Sea of Galilee and then flows down the Jordan River into the Dead Sea there. And you see the Dead Sea very close to Jericho and where they are camped. Matter of fact, we're going to see if we get to it tonight that where they cross the Jordan River that it's in the flood stage, that is the runoff has begun. And so you know that those who are in Jericho, just right across the plain there, they see all these people. I mean, there's two million people at least in this camp. And they have seen them up there around Mount Nebo. As you look straight across, you can see it. And and them coming down, they know the children of Israel are are coming. They know what has happened on the other side with the defeat of King Og and Shihon. And we're going to see that very clearly as we go through chapter 2. So they're there in the, um, still on the east side getting ready to cross the Jordan. As I said, the Jordan River uh, had a lot more water at the time that they're going across cross that we will see. And the Dead Sea also would be bigger than it was today. There's no outlet out of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the lowest point on the face of the earth, about 1,300 feet below sea level. So the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea, and then the water evaporates as you see um, evaporation takes place. They're in the Dead Sea. But because there's less water, the Dead Sea is smaller. So the Dead Sea probably came very close to the city of Jericho and to the plains of Moab as well, where they are camped. And if you go to Israel today, they'll show you where the water level used to be of the Dead Sea. Um, So here they are. They're camped in the Achaia Grove. And Joshua is going to send two spies across the Jordan River into Jericho to spy out Jericho. Now, here's something about Jericho. Uh, Israel is located geographically very interesting, in an interesting place. And, and as you um, look at Jericho, it's in the Jordan Valley there. And the land of Israel, Israel is today very small. It's only the size of the state of New Jersey. But it's like a mini Southern California. Uh, you have the coastal area, which is very beautiful, and palm trees. You have the desert, which is like Palm Springs, perhaps, in California. And, and Jericho is sitting right on the edge of that Negev Desert. To the south in the Dead Sea, it's all desert. To the north, you start getting up into the hills of uh, Judea. And uh, very prosperous, very uh, um, um, forestry. It's It's beautiful up in that area. The Jordan Valley itself... Uh, is very warm where jericho is is very warm all year long and it's a great winter place uh, a lot of palm trees some of the best fruit in the world comes from jericho today so here is jericho that is planted there but travelers would come from africa and asia and europe israel is located where kind of those three continents come together so it's a major trade route right through the the Jordan Valley there. So travelers would be coming from Northern Africa. They'd be coming from Asia and traveling through there. And they would stop at Jericho. It was a major stop for those who were traveling through that area. So here is Joshua. The first battle they're going to go against is against Jericho. The walls are high. He sends the spies in. And when you read this, you can't help but think what happened the last time spies went in. Right? In Numbers chapter 13. When 12 spies went into the land, they came back and they said, you know what? The land is good um, and it's wonderful. It is the land flowing with milk and honey, but there's giants in the land. There's cities with walls up to heaven. The inhabitants are everywhere. We can't go into the land. And the people begin to, to cry out, saying, let's go back to Egypt and we're going to get squashed, and we're going to die out here in the wilderness, and they're about ready to stone Joshua and Caleb, the two spies that said, forget about the giants, let's go into the promised land, because God has given us the land, he promised that to us. So these two spies are going to go into Jericho, and when we read this, we can think that initially, that it's a Israeli defense force reconnaissance mission. But as we continue to read here, we're going to see it's real, really A rescue mission, isn't it? It's going to be a rescue mission to one of this harlot that is named Rahab. And we're going to see an amazing story of redemption as we go through chapter 2 here that many of you are familiar with. So here is Jericho, and here are these two spies. They come to the house of a harlot named Rahab, and they lodge there. Now you may be thinking, why would they go there? I mean, then they just come out of the wilderness. Then Moses just tell them again to, to live for the Lord, to keep His commandments. What are they doing, lodging at a harlot's house? Well, a couple things here. Um, here she is. Her house is going to be on the wall, and it is believed, as it was customarily back in ancient times, that the harlot would be at a place where they would lodge those travelers. So with these two spies coming into Jericho, it would be a natural place for them to go, to go to that place where they would lodge. Now in the Hebrew here, that harlot can also take on the meaning of innkeeper. And that may be the case, or also having the meaning of what a harlot truly is, the oldest profession in the world. So Rahab here being a harlot, there are those who say, well Rahab, she was probably just an innkeeper, but Here's the thing to remember. When you go into the New Testament, it speaks about Rahab, and it says that she's a harlot. That Greek word means just that. It doesn't mean just innkeeper. So she's probably very likely she is there at uh, whoever... If she's overseeing the innkeeper where travelers would come, she would be there. She was a harlot. And so here are these two men. They're there, and they're lodging there. And so verse 2, It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. And so the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men whom you have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. And then the, women, uh, the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they are f- from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. In verse 6, But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order um, on the roof. And then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. So the king of Jericho, he knows that spies have come in. Again, they're looking right across the valley. They see the camp of the children of Israel. Now they probably think that they got some time here because we're going to see in chapter 3 that when they cross the Jordan River, the Jordan River is in its flood stage. And they're probably thinking there's no way that these people can cross the river at this time. we got a month or so to prepare but then they get word that their spies have come in. They immediately, the king goes to Rahab. He knows that that's probably where they're going to be. And they ask Rahab, where are those two men that, that came from the children of Israel? And she says to them, I don't know. Um, there were two men that came. I didn't know where they came from. And so they left right before you shut the gates. Now the walls, again, they would have the gates open during the day, and then at night they would seal those gates, or whenever there was the enemy that would surround the city, they could seal those gates. So they they would close those gates. The city was in lockdown, essentially. No one gets in, no one gets out. They just left, and so if you pursue them, maybe you can get to them. Now she's lying here, isn't she, to those who are looking for the two spies. And what this does is it brings up an interesting discussion that people like to get into, what is called situational ethics. Was it okay for her to lie? And people debate about it. It's the same debate, oftentimes, that is asked when it came to World War II. When those who would hide the Jews from the Nazis, from those soldiers that would come and they would knock on their doors and say, are you hiding them? No, we're not. Was it right for them to lie in that situation? Was it right for Rahab to lie? And we're going to see here—is is you can debate it and go through it and stuff, that God is going to, to recognize her faith. God is going to command her on her faith. Bible simply just records what it is that she says. But I will say this, that I think that she is acting on her faith here. Because she is going to say that I know that God has given you the land, as we're going to read and she knows that, that, that these are God's people that are coming into the land. So she's acting on her faith. And it took real courage for her to lie because she's risking her own life because they would have found those men. They would have surely put her to death. So here is the debate that goes on about all these things. But here she knows that God has given them the land. She hides them up on the roof. She says they they may have gone out. So verse 8, now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are on the other side of the Jordan, Shihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, verse 11, our hearts melted. Neither there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my Father's house and give me a true token. And spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the man answered her, Our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, it shall be when the Lord has given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with you. And so she gives this wonderful statement of faith, doesn't she? She says in verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And notice that the Lord in your Bible should be all capitalized L-O-R-D. And whenever you see the Lord in the Old Testament capitalized, she's using the name of God. When Moses was there at the burning bush in the book of Exodus chapter 3, and Moses said, tell us your name. And the Lord said, I am that I am. You go tell the children of Israel that I am has sent you. So the name of God, I am, they have translated that to Yahweh or to Jehovah, or it's in your Bible, Lord, L-O-R-D. That is the name of God. That's the name she's using. She says, I know that that your God, I know that the God of the children of Israel, verse 9, that the Lord has given you the land. I know that. And then verse 11, that your Lord is, He is God, as we read that. That your Lord, for the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth. So she is given this wonderful statement of faith. Now, she says we have heard of the stories over the last 40 years. Those stories would come to them through the travelers that were coming through. Hey, the, there's a nation that has come out of Egypt, and the Lord opened up the Red Sea and drowned the Egyptian army, the Egyptian chariots. Remember at that time that Egypt was the most powerful empire on the face of the earth, and, and here the Lord drowned those Egyptians' chariots, and that story had been a part and told to them, and they have known about that for years. And also we know what the Lord did to King Shaihan and Og on the other side there, that you utterly destroyed them. So she knows that the Lord is true, that he truly is the Lord. And we see that she is going to be saved, and it's a wonderful picture of God's redemption to those who come to him. And I believe if the whole city would have just said, you know what, we've heard the stories and we know that, children of Israel, God has given you the land and He is the Lord, that it wouldn't have been destroyed. That they too could have come into that salvation and into that faith as well. And they knew and they knew, they had heard the stories. You see, today, it's only a couple months till Easter. Easter is going to be, I believe, April 4th, the first Sunday. And as we begin to get closer to Easter, a lot of people that are unbelievers, they have heard about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, haven't they? They know that Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter morning. But yet they haven't believed with their hearts in a living faith, a faith in surrendering their hearts to Jesus Christ. And that's what Rahab is doing. She hides these spies. She comes to them, and she says, I know that the Lord is God, that He's God in heaven. I know, no doubt about it, that he's given you the land, so have mercy on me. So it's a wonderful picture of God's redemption that will touch us and is available to all of us. She is a harlot. And yet, she is recorded in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. It's one that would come into salvation because of her faith in Jesus, in, in the Lord. You see, there are those who perhaps have heard about the crucifixion, they've heard about the resurrection, but they haven't come to faith. It hasn't, they've missed it by about 18 inches, and it hasn't gotten into their hearts. And I pray that we would be ones that we would always remind people of Jesus Christ and him crucified in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and pray for them, Lord, that they would open up their hearts and surrender to you. It's interesting that Rahab is also mentioned in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus, isn't she? Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab. So Rahab is going to have a son named Boaz. You remember Boaz in the book of Ruth, Right? when it would be Ruth that would come over from, as a Moabite woman, come into Bethlehem, and she too, we read her story, and we read that beautiful love story, a beautiful picture of redemption, that as Ruth would then marry Boaz, Boaz being the kinsman redeemer, and our greater than Boaz, Jesus Christ, is our kinsman redeemer that has redeemed us. And so it would be that Boaz would marry um, Ruth, and then they would have a son, Obed, and then Obed begot Jesse, who then begot who? David, the king of Israel. So Rahab here is the great great mother of King David. And again, it shows God's grace and His kindness, doesn't it, that His salvation is available to any of us as we surrender our hearts to Him. One more point that I'd like to make before we move on. We remember, we've heard, we know that what has happened in the last 40 years, that God opened up the Red Sea, that He has given you victory on the other side of the Jordan River. When those spies went in almost 40 years previously, in the second year of their exodus, and they went into the Promised Land, and they came back and said, we can't go in because we're going to be defeated and we're going to die out here in the wilderness, they had forgot about the power of God and the faithfulness of God, the greatness of God. Now it's the enemies that have heard what happened with the Red Sea being parted and the drowning of the Egyptian chariots and the victory they had on the other side of Jordan, and now they're full of fear, and they should be. I bring that point out because in our lives, every single one of us, that we have Jerichos that we face, don't we? We have giants that we face. We have difficulties and battles that we go through in life. But we don't have to be afraid, as the exhortation of Scripture tells us. And the Lord is telling the children of Israel, you don't need to be afraid because I'm with you. And the great power of God and the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God is something that we need to remember always. Always. You know, the greatest miracle has already been performed. And that is Jesus Christ dying for our sins and rising from the grave and you and I being changed as we surrender our hearts to him. A changed individual. Regeneration has taken place. I think it's the greatest miracle of all. The power of God. And that's why it would be Paul that would say that I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for whoever believes the Jew first and the Greek second. And anyone who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, that there is the power of God to change us. And all of us come from different backgrounds and different experiences. Maybe some of us grew up in the church. Some of us have had backgrounds. Maybe that, that, that there was a lot of sin that was there, and it's all forgiven by Jesus Christ, and we have a new heart. That's the greatest miracle of all. But as you journey through life, that there are the battles and the difficulties that we face remember the power of God, remember the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. If God be for us, that's what Joshua said when they were saying, we can't go into the promised land. Joshua said, yeah, we can. He's promised us this land. And if God is for us, who can be against us? We don't need to be afraid of those giants. And you and I, as we go through life, and as we go through the difficult circumstances or face them, remember this, and it's a key for us to experience that abundant life that the Lord has for us, that God is good and He's faithful. And He's all-powerful. And the victory has already been won through the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And He's not going to leave us or forsake us. So it's the, those who are the enemies of God, those who have rejected Jesus Christ, that are the ones that need to be afraid, not us. Because God's going to see us through. And so here is... The children of Israel, they're going to be encouraged by what Rahab says in her statement of faith. But first, as we read in verse 15, Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterwards, you may go your way. So the man said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you bind this line of scarlet cord on the window through which you let us down, and unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, all your father's household to your own home, so it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house and to the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on your head, if a hand is laid on him. So, Verse 20, and if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from our oath which you made us swear. Then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed. And she bound the scarlet cord in the window. Again, it's a wonderful picture of Jesus' death on Calvary's cross. She's told to put a scarlet cord outside of her window. And he, she's instructed, you bring your family in. Anybody that's outside is not going to be spared. Their blood be on their own hands and on their own heads. But those whoever are there, when we see the scarlet cord, that red cord outside the window, then you're going to be spared and you're going to be saved. It would be Isaiah in chapter 1, verse 18. As the Lord says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That scarlet cord hanging outside the window, symbolic of the blood of Jesus Christ that saves us, that brings forgiveness to us, doesn't it? It reminds me so much of the Passover there in the book of Exodus, chapter 13, when the children of Israel about ready to leave the Egypt and they were told to slay the Passover lamb and then apply the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lintels. And as they did that, it make a form of a cross. But as the angel came by and passed over those homes, seeing the blood applied, that they were saved from that last plague. Anybody else outside walking around or whatever, it, it wouldn't be applied to them. So, It's a powerful picture of our Passover, Jesus Christ, as we're going to learn that Paul will say Jesus Christ is our Passover. And the blood of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us in salvation, that scarlet thread that's outside our window, as we apply the blood of Jesus Christ in our lives, it brings forgiveness and salvation to you and to me. So it's a wonderful, wonderful picture of what Jesus has done for us, Jesus' blood wiping out the hand, writing a requirement that was against us, as we saw in Colossians chapter 2. And as we come in faith and apply the blood in our lives, we too are saved. So just a wonderful, beautiful picture here, looking forward to what Jesus Christ would do in redeeming mankind. And so verse 22, they departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but did not find them. So the two men returned, Descended from the mountain and crossed over, and they came to Joshua the son of Nun and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint hearted because of us. They would go out of Jericho, they would hide for three days. In that area, there's a lot of caves. Matter of fact, right down the street from Jericho is the Qumran Caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. So a lot of caves and places where they could hide out, very rugged country. So they would hide out for three days, and then they would come out. The scarlet cord, speaking of the blood of Jesus Christ. As they hide for three days, I can't help but think about how Jesus, how he was put into a tomb for three days, and then he came forth. And they come back to Joshua and they say, you know what, the Lord has truly given us the land. These spies are encouraged by Rahab and her faith. Rahab's faith does something. And encourages men. wow, what she said, she knows that the Lord truly is God, that the Lord has given us the land. You see, they didn't come back to Joshua and say, you know what, Joshua, we're encouraged and we're blessed because we saw a weakness in the wall how we can attack the wall. Or we're encouraged and blessed because I don't think they're as tough as they think they are. Or we've come up with a battle plan. As we're hiding for three days, we're kind of making it up. They came forth after three days and there's hope. You and I have hope as Jesus came forth from the tomb after three days, validating what he did on Calvary's cross for you and for me. But we can encourage one another is what I'm trying to get to. As we just say, you know what, this is what the Lord's doing in my life as we hear about what the Lord is doing in other people's lives. And I pray that we would encourage one another in that area. When I hear about how God is working in your lives, and you tell me about that, it, it, it does something to me. It builds me up. It lifts me up. And I hope that we do that with one another. As they would come back and say, you know what, we met this lady Rahab, and, and we heard her say these things. They know what... Knew what happened 40 years ago. And Rahab is one that she believes in the Lord. She's going to have a scarlet thread outside. And the people are faint hearted. And the Lord truly has given us the land. And when I hear from you or you hear from me that, you know, God's promises are true. And He's going to work on my behalf. And He's going to do this in my life. And this is what His word, it helps us to encourage one another, doesn't it? So here they are, they're encouraged as they hear the word of the Lord, as they receive that encouragement from Rahab, her faith does something for them. And we can encourage each other in the faith that we have as we look to the Lord and giving each other the word of the Lord. And I pray that we would do that. Just sharing with people what Jesus Christ has done in his goodness and his faithfulness to you. So chapter 3, they're going to cross the Jordan River. Joshua rose early in the morning as they set out From Achaia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel and lodged there before they crossed over. And we'll get to that next week. I was hoping to get to it tonight, but we've run out of time. And we want to go to the Lord again tonight and just thank Him for His wonderful work and His amazing salvation and redemption that has been given to us. And Father, we do. We see this beautiful picture and the story of Rahab. Touched by you, coming in faith, recorded in the Hall of Faith in Romans chapter eleven, as she believed that that you are true, and that your promises are true. Uh, you are going to get the promised land, and she believed that you truly are truly our God. And Father, we thank you for being us being reminded that your salvation and grace and goodness is available for all of us. No matter what we've gone through, what we've experienced, how we've fallen, how, Lord, we've come short, because all of us have. And that's the message of the gospel, how we need you, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. As we apply the blood in our own lives, that is coming in faith, pleading the blood of Jesus Christ, Recognizing that he died for our sins. And I pray that every single one of us in this room that we have come to that point of redemption and salvation that comes alone through Jesus, the work on the cross, knowing that he would come forth from the grave three days later. Oh, Father, we have reason to be thankful. We don't need to be afraid, even though fear can grip our lives, confusion, difficulty. Lord, we become weary. That we would understand that the Lord is with us. You promise you'll never leave us or forsake us. That we can look to you, to your word, and stand on your promises. And Lord, I pray that we would be ones, that we would encourage one another. That Lord, to continue on in faith, and stepping out in faith. And to stand on the promises that you've given to us through your word. Knowing that you want to guide us and direct us and give us victory. And experience that abundant life. Father, we thank you for tonight, and thank you for all that are here. I pray that as we just worship, Lord, for a few more moments, that you would continue to minister to our hearts. Maybe some of us need to be built up. Maybe some of us need to be encouraged. Maybe some of us that we need to come and just, just throw ourselves at your mercy and grace. Your loving arms are open to us as we truly come, humbling our hearts. And Father, we thank you again for the work of redemption, the greatest miracle of all that you've done in our lives, giving us new hearts, washing us clean. And I pray that that would be evident in every day of our lives. Bless this time, Lord. I pray that you would just draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.